asking the Lord to keep our eyes above the waters, above the waves, and to trust Him without borders, and to rest in His embrace. Are you there? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together, encouraging each other with truth, strengthening feeble limbs and crushed hearts, perplexed minds, all the kinds of things, Lord, that that life uh, dishes out to us. Thank you for this time together. It's an important time. Time to praise you, time to worship, time to pray, time to, to encourage each other, time to hear from your word. Now, I pray, Father, that you would help your servant to deliver your truth as it is laid out for us in the scriptures and for our hearts to be inclined to respond and receive your word, to obey, to apply, to trust, to benefit from all that it is to be a child of God, to be saved by Jesus Christ, rescued, brought into salvation, the state of salvation. That's our country. The kingdom we live in is the kingdom of salvation. Let us not forget, O God, For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. In these, um, I think we've become, or it's become more obvious to Canadians in these days, especially younger, younger ones. Sort of this past year and a half, the dominating effect a government can actually have on our lives. For the most part, most of us have grown up with a, the government exists and it does things that are a mystery to us, but it rarely affects our lives. But we realize that that's not always the way it is. And in fact, the vast majority of our world lives in a very different context than we have mostly grown up in. The vast, vast majority of the world. But for us, it's, it's utterly shocking that an emergency order, or how quickly an emergency order can weaponize law enforcement, for instance, or shape our personal economies, or re, um, <clears throat> re-engineer our social fabric, or deconstruct deep, excuse me, family ties or interfere with our deepest held convictions. So government matters. And we've been been, uh, involved for the last number of weeks as we've chased through the lives of Elijah and Elisha, a lot of government stuff. It's not changing because it's built in the context of governance, leadership, people in power, what they do. We've also come to to believe, I hope, or come to know that God is intimately involved in all geopolitical 
happenings in our world. He's not a spectator. He's very much a sovereign God over all that takes place. God purposed Monday. We know that, right? And God's purposes remain fundamentally untouchable by political affairs. We are called to keep making disciples. Jesus keeps building the church. And everything else that's going on is just activity. Because that's really the core reality of the universe. So if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, if you don't, please bring them next week. Would you turn to 2 Kings, please, chapter 8, verses 1 to 16, we're going to look at today. Today we're going to look at some, in, some more insights and instructions on the use and abuse of power for good, for bad, moral justice, immoral ambition, all of that's going to be packaged up today. Particularly for us, how to live out or represent the righteousness of God in good settings or bad settings. And how important that is for us. How that is our call. That's who we are. It may involve high joy and it may involve many tears. Representing the righteousness of God. It's not for the timid, it's not for the weak, it's not for those who don't have the Lord. But for those who have the Lord, we are more than able to represent the righteousness of God. So at play today, what we're going to see is deeply flawed leaders, the man of God, the people of God, and God. That's kind of the representation of all of history, deeply flawed leaderships and pe- leadership and people, the people of God. And God. Specifically today, we're going to look at the government of Israel in the time of Elisha, the government of Aram, and God's providence. That we might see God at work. And there's lots of moving parts, so we're going to look, consider two different events one good and one not so good. We're going to consider two ways to govern today. God's oversight of both, good and bad. So, if your Bibles are open, or your electronic devices are all fired up, then 2 Kings 8 is where we are, verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life. Remember the Shunammite woman? who God had used Elisha to raise from the dead. Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. And there's a collective sigh from all of us. What? We just got out of being jammed up and fortified and women eating their babies. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. 
At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. Evidently had been confiscated while she was away. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Remember the guy who absconded some money from uh, Elisha's work and ended up with leprosy, that guy, and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, this, this is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And the king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, Take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, you will certainly recover, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping, asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with a sword, dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women? Hazael said, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. This is the word of God, and these are the incidents that he wanted us to know about. So let's go back to the good story for a moment, shall we? This will tax your emotions to the maximum today. Good stories, bad stories. Happy, sad. Here we have a situation that's certainly started out difficult. Once again, God tells the prophet Elisha what's going to happen, and he shares with the Shunammite widow that there's going to be seven years famine. We're like, hasn't there been enough? When will God's people ever... So this, this whole section is a case for moral justice. And we realize that apparently, as, as Elisha's telling her, get out of here, get out of Dodge, 
you, you need to get out of here. There's going to be a famine for seven years. It appears it would be a localized famine because she could escape somewhere else and be okay. We realize as we read this, this once again, God must be disciplining his people. This is an Israel thing. And God is disciplining them. Clearly, the lessons that have been unfolding like waves on a shore have not registered in their hearts or their minds. They still continue, it would appear evidently, to be unfaithful to their covenant with God. And for covenant unfaithfulness, they've already been warned in the, in the Pentateuch what would happen, that they would be under severe discipline of God. Because God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to give up his people. He loves us so much. He wants us and he will go to the extreme to gain our attention that we might turn back to the Lord. And so we find here that Israel would not appear, it would appear they would not turn back from their idolatry. And at the time of Elijah, God had disciplined them with a three and a half year famine. Now we have a seven year famine. God's doubling down on his punishment. How much does God have to do to get our attention? To get our wayward attention? What does God have to do? It seems to me that God is handing down a global class detention right now. And we're all in it. God is grabbing the attention of the whole world. A world that has been systematically shutting God out. And among the last holds of, of sort of a, at least a semblance of recognition of God, like a place like Canada, God keep our land glorious and free. Our Charter of Rights talks about this dominion being under God and the rule of law. But we've been watching systematically people in our country, in our leadership, erect walls and barriers and obstacles to keep God out. So they can't see him anymore. They don't want anything to do with God. God will not be ignored. God does not go quietly into the good night. God is a God who reveals himself through creation and, of course, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his church. So in many ways, he's realigning what I see in terms of shaking international monetary policies and realigning power players for his next moves, whatever they may be. So how do we play into that? What's our role? Well, I think we'll find out some things today as we look at all these moving parts that are going on here. God will just turn up the dial for those who ignore him. In fact, if you look at the prophet Hosea, he talks there about the various different ways that God approaches us to get our attention. He operates from gentle to a more fierce attention-grabbing mechanism. In Hosea 5, he talks about God seeking to get our attention like a moth. A moth isn't too 
harsh. Nobody cares much about a moth coming into your house, do you? <laughs> My wife does. But they just flutter around. They don't do much. Drop a little powder in your house. But if that doesn't get your attention, if God visiting you as a moth doesn't get your attention, then Hosea chapter 8 talks about God approaching us like an eagle. An eagle's an upgrade from a moth. Swoops into our life. Powerful. If the eagle doesn't get our attention, back to Hosea 5, God will visit us like a lion with ferocity, with power. That's a real attention grabber. A moth comes into your house, mm. a lion comes into your house, that gets your attention. And so here we have another famine. So why does, um, why does she head off to Philistia? That's the, we haven't heard much about the Philistines for a while. We've heard a lot about the Arameans, but not the Philistines for a while. We almost forgot about them. And here she goes, the Shunammite takes her family and goes off to the Philistines. We're not really told here why. So some of what I have to tell you today is just sanctified imagination. Might be right, might not be. But one thing we do know for certain is that she was invited by the Lord to hide for a while from the evil or the trouble that was coming upon the land. We know that, that sometimes that might be the right tactic. Just lay low for a while. Let the discipline pass over. Now, if the discipline is for you, you can't run away from it. You can't go to Philistia and run away from the discipline of God. Jonah found that out. It doesn't matter where you go. God's GPS will find you. And so she goes to Philistia. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes our idolatry becomes domesticated. We get so used to some of the things that we've allowed to nudge God into a lack of priority position that there's so much of our... Uh, part of our life that we don't notice them much anymore. Sometimes it takes a, a journey to another place or a journey to another situation where, where idolatry becomes more graphically obvious, like Philistia. You realize that, wow, we've been, we've been uh, ignoring God. We've been, we've been actually prioritizing idols in our lives. This is why I'm, I'm, I'm big on everyone, at least one point in their life, making sure they travel on some sort of mission for the Lord outside of the country. And I'm not talking about going to Paris. Paris, France, that is. I'm talking about going to the banks of the Rafiji River, where people live in grass huts have no refrigeration, those kind of places. Where for a moment that you, you realize, wow, maybe I've been, maybe I, it, it kind of hits you, you know? Maybe I've been idolizing comfort. Maybe I've been idolizing freedom. Maybe I've been idolizing liberty. Maybe I've been idolizing material things and I didn't even notice it. 
when you see what the vast majority of the world doesn't have. Sometimes that's how God gets our attention and changes us. I don't know, maybe she just went there because it would probably be less offensive to uh, the king of Israel than if she went to Judah. It's kind of like somebody going to a different church. It's like, what? Different church in the city. Why would you do that? But if they move out of town and go to a different church, it's like, well, I guess they had to do that. So she didn't want to offend the king of Israel, maybe. It's hard to know. But she comes back after the seven years. We get to this place in verse 3 where it says, at the end of the seven years, the king of Israel is feeling bouncy. He's feeling giddy. He's feeling excited. He calls Gehazi and talks. To talk to him, you know, we, we, again, we don't know what happened here. How did Gehazi get back into a conversation with the king of Israel? You, know, you remember he was a leper? He had extorted money and he became a leper? We don't know, but maybe in the meantime, he had repented of his sin and God had cleansed him of leprosy. Because now he seems to be talking with the big boys again. He's back in. And so the king is having a conversation with Gehazi. And he says, please tell me about the great things that Elisha has been doing. What? It wasn't long ago. In fact, was it just a few pages back that he wanted to have Elisha's head taken off? We're left with some hope in this moment because we wonder, hey, wait a second. This is the king who is a Baal worshiper and and his favorite climatologist God is Baal but it's actually Elisha who told him about the famine it's actually Elisha Elisha that appears to be representing the the chief God of weather the God of gods Jehovah himself maybe I ought to listen more to this guy you know what I ought to backtrack and find out a little bit more about this guy's life about this like I need to know more about Elisha There's something for us to learn here in a few moments. So Elisha is the one who's called the famine. It now appears that he maybe is connected to the true God. And you have this circumstance where the king is talking to Gehazi. They're reviewing all of the things that that Elisha has done, and one of them is the story of raising the Shunammite's son to life. The story of of, of of, of a young child who's died and now is alive. And as Gehazi's talking about the story, who walks in? Who walks by? The Shunammite. He's like, in fact, he says, the king, that's her right there. This, this amazing story I've been telling you, that's her. And, and you see that guy with her? That's the son that was dead. And so, she, so he has to, hear from her, has to hear from her, and she tells him the story. He's like, this is unbelievable. What we get to experience here is... The value, the enduring value of a godly reputation. Elisha remained faithful to God, served God, obeyed God, consistently spoke for God. 
And here we have this scenario where even in the absence of Elisha from the event, God has collected this, it just happens, just so happens, that the king talks to Gehazi, Gehazi knows the story, the Shunammite woman just happens to walk by, she actually needs her property back, which has been confiscated, she would never get an audience with the king very easily, and God choreographs all of this in the absence of Elisha because of his consistent faithfulness to the living God. And I want to share with you, in terms of application, beloved, our reputation as servants of the living God can bear fruit even in our absence. Elisha wasn't even here. This whole ministry event is going on, choreographed by God, using the righteous reputation of Elisha to take care of the Shunammite woman. Almighty God cares about one widow woman in Israel who was exiled for seven years and came back and needed her property back. One widow woman. How does God have time for that? Doesn't he have a universe to run? He's got kings and nations and elections to deal with. And he cares about one widow lady in Israel. He looked after her through the famine and brings her home. And the king says, assigns an official, give back everything that belonged to her. And not only that, including all of the income from her land from the day that she left the country until now. Do you believe God can do that for you? Can restore to you what is gone, what has been taken away, what has been lost? based on a faithful heart. There's a huge lesson of the future value of good present relationships and behavior. It's a huge lesson of the value, the future value of good present relationships and behavior. You never know why it's important for you to obey the Lord or be righteous stand for him, speak for him. You never know how God's gonna use that to orchestrate a restoration of a widow's property sometime later. And, and I can't help but notice here that God is the champion of the vulnerable. Is that not really the, the loud and clear message that comes out here? Do we, know, do we remember about the Shunammite woman? What she was like? Whenever Elisha the prophet would be around, she would give him hospitality, bring him into her home, feed him, take care of him. Not for any other reason than that's just who she was. That was her way of serving God righteously by embracing hospitality and taking care of, of God's servant. I, I watch here as, as the Shunammite woman takes care of God's business and later on, God takes care of her business. I've seen that played out so many times. 
I mean, after all, you know, what is the right thing to do with a confiscated inheritance? Well, the right thing, of course, to do is give back the property. Of course it is. And how do you treat a widow? And God demonstrates to us here that he remembers our kindness, he remembers our righteousness, and honors his promises to the vulnerable. And then we turn the page to a not-so-nice story. But nevertheless, the providence of God is all over, oozing all over this story. Elisha's once again on a mission, an international mission. He crosses international borders fearlessly. That's what I love about Elisha's character because he's so secure in God and so secure in his mission, so secure in who God is, that not only is he righteous, but he's fearless, and he, he crosses over. And so in this particular incident, he heads to Damascus. Why? Because there's some unfinished business that God had given to a, his master, Elijah. Elijah was told back in 1 Kings 19 that he was to go and, and make Hazael the king of Aram. Now, some time has passed, and Elijah just happens to decide that, obviously from the prompting of God's heart, that he should go to Damascus. And now would be the time. It's the right time. And so you have here now a collision with God's providence, immoral ambition, and the righteous servant of God. It's an intersection that we face regularly. The providence of God, immoral ambition all around us, and our responsibilities to be righteous before God. And how does it play out here? The case of immoral ambition. It just so happens that Elisha's in town when Ben-Hadad gets sick. And so he asks his servant, Hazael, his right-hand guy, or we're not really told his rank, but he's clearly important, to... Um, to go and meet with Elisha and find out if he's going to be okay. And so in typical ancient Near East fashion, uh, Hazael puts the dog on. I mean, he gets 40 camels of stuff and, 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 and brings this out. Because the idea in ancient Near East is, hey, if you want to get some good advice from the soothsayer or the prophet, make sure you make it worth their while. And the whole idea, of course, is if I give him enough gifts and things, perhaps the prophecy will go my way. Perhaps I can bribe him to say good things about me as if that's a legitimate prophecy. But nevertheless, you've got this whole thing. And of course, the ancient Near East, was, the presentation was everything. Pomp and circumstance. You got to make a big show. You know, there are a lot of people who you, you get to, to, you know, oversee an event, say in a church, you know, we got something we want to put on. You know, there's some people that just like presentation is everything. It's got to be a great presentation. It catches your attention. Didn't change Elisha one bit, however. So he says to Hazel, this is a very confusing statement. 
Go and say to your master, go and say to him, Benadad, you will certainly recover, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. How does one recover and also die? And then it says, he stares at Hazael. They use Pastor Nick. Because it isn't fair to stare at anybody else. Like, you tell him something, and then you just stare. Because the first person who blinks loses. Nick lost. Because he's a great foil. He stares at Hazael. It's the stare that you get from God through the Holy Spirit in your heart. When you're at a moment, an intersection of speaking for the Lord and you choose not to. Or you're at the intersection of a sinful choice, whether to sin or not to sin, and you choose to sin. It's, it's the stare of shame. It's the stare that when you know they know and they know you know they know, it's that stare. Elisha knew full well what was going on in Hazal's mind. I know what you're going to do. You're going to seize this opportunity to grab power. Because God knows all about our designs long before we carry them out. And, and what was going on here, it's, it's, this, it's like the stare that Jesus gave to Peter after he had been beat up by the Praetorium Guard. And Peter had already denied the Lord. And he looked from the courtyard to Peter and their eyes locked. And Peter went away and wept because he knew in his heart what he had done. Hazael already knows in his heart what he's going to do. He's opportunistically going to use a health crisis to seize power and control. Some things never change. And so he's going to justify his cruelty because the, the man of God at that moment starts weeping. He says, Lord, why, would, why are you weeping? Because he says, I know the harm that you're going to do to the people of Israel. I know that you're going to set fire to their fortified cities. I know that you're going to destroy their young men. I know that you're going to dash little children to the ground. I know that you're going to cut open pregnant women and rip the babies right out of them. And his answer is, I'm but a dog. How could I accomplish this feat? I, I had to take a double take when I read that. You'd like to think that someone would say, fall on their knees and say, oh my God, could I be that? Is what's going on in my head, in my mind right now, the designs for power and control, would that take me there, oh God? But no, he says, how could I, like, sloughs it off. How could I but a dog? He's trying to false humility, the, the whole deal. 
accomplish this feat? What, slaughtering young men, smashing children, ripping babies out of pregnant women is a feat? What happens to human beings? Listen, beloved, the heart is more wicked and deceitful than you can ever imagine. And given the opportunity and absent the grace of God to hold on tight to us and our willingness to be held, we've, week after week, have watched what people do. The allure of power and control is intoxicating. And of course, he will, he will, he will justify it. It's in the best interests of the Arameans. If we didn't do it to them, they'd do it to us. It's the best interest of the community. And after all, preserving power at all costs will benefit people. And so he takes the message back to his master, the king of Aram, from Elisha. And Benadad asks him, what did Elisha tell you? And he says, he told me that you would certainly recover. Is that what Elisha told him? You can interact. Is that what Elisha told him? Well, yes. But that's not all Elisha said. You know, we fundamentally operate in this fallen world with a lot of voices that just tell us half-truths. Not a lot of people out there telling you the whole truth. There's a lot of people telling you half-truths. Because half-truths kind of sop the conscience. Well, I, what I did say is truthful. It's just not all the truth. And so he goes back with a half-truth. Elisha basically now has been turned into a false prophet by Hazael. Because when Ben-Hadad dies... The prophecy from Elisha was, according to Hazael, that you'll recover. It's the risk on receiving secondhand accounts of the truth. That's why I said, I hope you have your Bibles with you today. That's why you always have to have your Bibles. God doesn't tell you half truths. When you're reading the story, He tells you the whole truth. You have to check on your teachers, on everybody, what people are saying. Don't be naive and think that ambitious people are going to tell you the truth. At least they're not going to tell you the whole truth. And so here you have the truth in God's word. And what does he do? He proceeds to fulfill the prophecy by waterboarding his master to death, smothers him. His mentor, his friend, his king, if he's that cruel, we should assume that the prophecy that Elisha said of him will come true, and it certainly does. You only have to read a few chapters on, chapter 10, chapter 13, to see what Hazael is like as king. 
and say, wait a second, um, wasn't this a divine appointment? Didn't God choose Hazael to be the king of Aram? And didn't God know all of these things that were going to take place? Yeah, yeah, we've just got finished a whole sermon telling you that God knew all about this. God is sovereign over all governance, good and bad. Hazael was God's idea. Just like the prime minister on Monday is God's idea in Canada. That's why we cling to the verse in Romans 8. For we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Including bad things. This continued to be the ongoing punishment on Israel to draw them back to God, which is a good thing, and required hard things for it to happen. But make no mistake over it, when you see the prophet weeping here, it is the same cry of Jesus as he stood outside on the heights overlooking Jerusalem, when he wept bitterly over the city, saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only recognized this, the day of your visitation, I, like a mother hen, would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not have it. Elisha is standing in for the Lord of glory, weeping over what was to come because the people would not turn back to God. God weeping for his people. It's like Jesus who weeps over the whole world today, over his church. And those who insist stubbornly on preferring idols and sin than Jesus, and he weeps. Oh church, oh church, if you would only have me as your only God but you would not have it so on what has God turned the searchlight today the spotlight what's the big takeaway for us I, I think when you combine these stories it is this that Elisha as representative of God found a way to live above the fray all the mess and activity of the warring governments. He was opposed often. He certainly wasn't loved by everyone, but he was always respected and always influential for God. Why? Because he faithfully positioned himself always to live and speak for God by living righteously and obedient before God through the good moments and through the bad moments, how important is it that we live a consistent righteous life? Elisha never stoops to dishonorable tactics, not ever. And can you imagine having the assignment that he had to stare into the face of the punisher of Israel who was going to do such heinous things and carry forth the mission obediently anyway? 
Can you imagine being in that position? Elisha saw the outcomes of Hazael as king, but he never let future discomfort affect present obedience. God had given him a mission. Elisha, I weep for the same things you weep. But your job is to remain obedient and righteous. It's my job to run the universe, not your job. And Elisha, being granted vision that we could never imagine, fulfilled the responsibility obediently and righteously. I would have wanted to interfere. I would have wanted to run to Ben and Dad and say, he's not telling you the truth. He's got ambitions to kill you. He never involved himself in that. He never involved himself fighting the government. He served God honorably, obediently in every circumstance. And leave the results of running the universe to the only one who can do it right, Almighty God. Father, I, I thank you for your word and instruction to us. It, it requires great wisdom for us to understand the, the nuance of life daily and to understand what to do, what's good, what's right. But Lord God, may Elisha demonstrate to us in his faithfulness, his righteousness, his obedience to never allow future discomfort to get in the way of present obedience. Oh Lord, I ask for that in my own life and I ask for that for our church. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the rich blessings that the Lord has provided for me is, and has been encouraged by you, is to develop really solid friendships with leaders, God's leaders throughout our whole globe. Realize that the, the sun never sets on the church of Jesus Christ. The S-U-N sun and the S-O-N sun. That God's work is global. It's a global church. And our brothers and sisters in m most parts of the world have faced the struggles of oppositional governments for most of the history of the church, their church, things that we haven't known. I'm not simply talking about our present situation, our present health situation. That's just a small part of a bigger story that's being written in our country where our government continues to write the story further and further away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been happening for decades. We've probably forgotten about some of the other egregious bills that are still floating over our head. There's a lot of, a lot of trouble out there. And I've come to realize that for the most part, there's not a lot of help from Christian leaders in this hemisphere with experience about these things. And I'm thankful for the relationships that I have with men who are in tough settings. Turkey, Lebanon, China, Egypt, places that have known persecution. And so I've been seeking counsel outside of the North American context on how to pastor in difficult times. And I happened to 
uh, have a conversation this week with a dear brother who is a church planter and a pastor in Beirut, Lebanon, who was there when his mother was killed by a rocket. These guys know stuff. I asked him, what should we be doing here? What should we be like during these days? His answer to me was this. I never push back the darkness by fighting the government. It's not our mandate. Leverage your freedom, of course. Leverage your freedom as long as you have it with energy and passion. But God has given the global church one mission. Make disciples who will stand up under the stress test of tough governments. And use your resources to be creative in reaching the lost. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This is the battles, are a spiritual battle. And the way you defeat Satan and darkness is by being part of God's work of new birth in people's lives. It's new believers who push back the darkness of the kingdom of the enemy of our souls. So, governments come and go and oppress and God gives us the same mission. Make disciples who will live righteously in good times and in bad times, who will be influential and useful for God's future purposes in intersections you could never imagine to reach people for Christ. That's the way the Lord our, is our salvation pushes back the darkness. Father, I pray this morning as we have encountered over and over again the truth of your dominance over the universe, yet your unwillingness to give us away. And you will do whatever is required to bring us close, to hold us, to disciple us, to, to enable us to be righteous witnesses of the truth that people might come to Christ because that's your mission. I pray that we might continue to stay on it and not get distracted from the mission. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.